G.K. Chesterton and his devoted wife, Frances, offered joy and friendship to everyone who knew them. Today's guest author, Nancy Brown, will give us some tips on having a Chesterton-inspired Advent and Christmas. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Welcome, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host. And today, Nancy Brown will offer some tips on having a Chesterton-inspired Advent and Christmas. Nancy Brown is a former homeschooler of 17 years a writer and manager at the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. (laughs) She's the author of The Woman Who Was Chesterton, a biography of Gilbert Keith Chesterton's wife, Frances. Nancy gives talks and seminars on Gilbert and Frances at home, and she believes that one day they will be declared saints. She loves to talk about Advent, Christmas, and the Chestertons. Nancy has also written the very popular Father Brown Readers, Adaptations of Chesterton's fictional detective stories featuring Father Brown, the world's first priest detective. She's the author of The Chestertons and the Golden Key, a book for grade school age children that has prompted a few families and homeschool groups to build a puppet theater and put on puppet plays. Nancy has given two seminars on homeschool connections, which are available free. The first was on Finding Levity in Your Homeschool, a Chestertonian Principle. The second is called, What the Wife of G.K. Chesterton Can Teach Us About Home Education. Those just sound like so much fun, Nancy. I want to go and listen to them now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be here with you. Oh, thank you. Would you start us off by just saying a little bit about what the Chestertons mean to you? Sure. When I first heard of G.K. Chesterton, I thought he was a priest. I, because I read Orthodoxy, and he was so theological that I thought, wow, this guy's got to have a higher education in theology, philosophy. We just, I just recognized that in him, so I assumed he was. And then I picked up a biography of him, and there was a chapter in there about his wife. And I thought, <laughs> he's married. Hmm. Well, what, a, what a surprise. <laughs> and then I thought, wow, who who could be married to this guy? He's a genius, but then you hear he's bumbling, doesn't know how to tie his shoes and his tie and <laughs> dress well. And, and I just thought, well, who, who could she be? And how did she manage him? And I kind of identified a little bit because my husband's this artistic genius type who sounded very much like Chesterton. <laughs> so I was kind of looking for tips and tricks to how do I be a good wife to my husband? And then when I I read that little chapter in that book, and I thought, oh, that's not enough. I need way more information about her. And I started searching. I couldn't find anything. Well, when I did finally delve into her life, and I started reading her letters, because that's really all that's left of her, are her letters and some notes that other people wrote about her, I identified with her very strongly as a woman, as a wife of this genius. Um, she, she wasn't a mother herself, but a spiritual mother. So I identified with that part of her. And I came to feel like Gilbert and Francis were my aunt and uncle and that I could go to them and I felt comfortable with them. I wanted to have tea with them. I wanted to spend time with them sitting around the table and talking. I knew that their discussions 
with me would be philosophical and theological and we'd have great talks and it would be fun and it would be filled with laughter. And, and it just attracted me so much that I wanted them to be a part of my family and I wanted to be a part of their family. So that's really initially, you know, how I came to love them as a couple. That's just beautiful. I, I resonate with so much of that, Nancy. And as you were talking, I was just remembering so much of Joseph Pierce's biography on Chesterton. I'm not sure which one touched your heart, but that one made me feel like he was an old friend. And it really does have that sense. And you don't get a ton on Frances, but she is significantly represented there and certainly appreciated. But I'm now I'm all excited to read your biography of Frances. That's definitely on my wish list now. And we'll put that in the show notes, everybody. That's, we'll make sure that that's there. Um, but yeah, the Chestertons had a welcoming table. And it suddenly occurs to me too, as someone who struggled with infertility for many years and had one child when as I was just about to turn 40, um, they were infertile and yet their home was full of children. And they were just remarkable people that, uh, that made everybody feel really loved. So I can, as you spoke about them so warmly and affectionately, I just identified with that. The book by Joseph Pierce is Wisdom and Innocence, and it is a wonderful biography of them. And that is the one I was referring to. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's spectacular. And it was his first published biography, and it was really a love letter to Chesterton, who was the person who turned him around and, and helped him to become a person of faith through his writings. Yeah. So talk a little about their faith. How would you describe it? Well, there's the initial stages and then the mature stages. So Chesterton was raised a Unitarian. He, he believed in God, but not really, he, he did, had no sense of the Trinity. Um, and he wasn't really sure about his feelings about God either. However, his father had read poetry to him. He read this, the life of St. Francis of Assisi to him. And even as a young boy, possibly as young as seven years old, Chesterton resounded with this story of St. Francis of Assisi. He also had a love for the Blessed Virgin Mary, who he always called Our Lady. And he would draw pictures of her as he was doodling. He's drawing this picture of Our Lady. And so there's this essence of something there, but it wasn't solidified. When he met Francis, she was a practicing Anglican, a very serious practicing Anglican. She read the Bible. She went to church on Sunday. She taught Sunday school. And in, in fact, she was so active as a Christian that it caught Chesterton's attention because he knew all of these Anglicans. They were all his friends, but no one was practicing their faith. No one was going to church no one was reading the Bible. They weren't actively faithful people, but Francis was. So she, they had conversations, obviously, when they were first uh, dating. She introduced him to the Trinity, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it was the first time he really understood that God was a family. And that was important. That was an important thing. And later on, he'll give her credit for bringing God to him, bring, bringing the cross to him, helping him understand who Jesus was. So he becomes a Christian under her tutelage, and they live Anglican life as they are married and they're first married. However, you can tell from Chesterton's writing that this isn't quite where he feels at home. Now, Francis felt very at home. 
in the Anglican church. And she loved everything, all the devotionals, church, children, everything about it. She was very faithful. But he was coming to believe that this wasn't it. It was really the Roman Catholic Church where, where the truth was. He, you can read it in 1908 in his book, Orthodoxy. You know he's almost there already. But he wanted her to come along with him. She wasn't ready. Now, it took until 1922, many, many years later, that he finally converted to the Catholic Church. And she said, I just can't see my way there yet. It took her about four more years. Now, when I think about that, I also think about the Hans because Scott Hahn converted. It took Kimberly four more years before she was ready. Wow. It's exactly the same interval. So Francis did convert to the Catholic faith in 1926. He lived for 10 more years. So the last 10 years of their life, they were unified in their faith and their church life. They helped build the church in their small town in Beaconsfield, which is in England, outside of London, where they had settled. Um, and, and they went to church together. They prayed the rosary together. I mean, they just, they had a life of faith. So their life actually was this entire struggle what is the truth? Where is the truth? Where should we be? How should we worship? You know, what's all of that? I mean, it was essential to who they were as a couple. It was a constant conversation in their life. How beautiful. How absolutely gorgeous. And I can see that this resonates for you personally. What are the touchstones for you in your walk? Well, for me, it's a, I've been a, I'm a cradle Catholic, been Catholic all my life. But, you know, there's points in your life when you're a teen where you don't know and, and what should you do. And then there's a time when I was probably about in my 30s where I thought, now what is the truth? Where is the truth? And I was invited also to a Christian church in my neighborhood, you know, Bible study with women. It was all very cozy and I wanted that. I needed that. Um, but they started questioning my faith. And that made me turn to instruct myself in what do Catholics actually believe? Because I didn't know. I, I couldn't answer the questions when they asked me, well, why do you baptize infants? And why do you do this? And why do priests, or why are they called father? And, you know, all the tr traditional uh, questions that people will ask Catholics. And I didn't know the answers. And I started searching. And one of the people who helped me understand my faith, and not only understand my faith, but feel confident in my faith, was Chesterton. He gave me such a sense of peace about, I didn't have to struggle anymore with my religion. I felt, you know what, I if this smart guy, if this Chesterton who I think is brilliant. And even, you know, Scott Hahn himself also fell, fell into that same category because I read all of his apologetic books. If these brilliant people come to the conclusion that they're, they should be Catholic, well, I should be Catholic too. And if I wasn't Catholic at that point, I would have converted. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I can't tell you how often when ordinary human doubt creeps in for me, and, I, and those touchstones, people like John Paul II and Scott Hahn and Chesterton and others, I just, I suddenly just sort of gaze upon them in memory and the, the way they've moved me and touched my life and touched others. And I think, I think they got it. I think I can walk through this moment of self-doubt or, or of doubt in my beliefs. Right, because we aren't always 100% sure. sure. 
That's human, right? Right. But, but we can be pretty sure. And Chesterton gives us that confidence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And notice how we just can't stop smiling speaking about him. <laughs> he was such a person of ease and joy and never made any enemies. He was just incredible. I mean, it's not that people didn't come against him. It's that he did not offend others. He was so kind. They brought Christmas and Advent to life with that same friendliness and open door as, you know, they were so sociable. Tell us some things about how they brought that season to life for themselves and for others. Well, for whatever reason, Frances always loved Christmas. And I think one of the reasons was because she actually suffered from seasonal affective disorder. So the winters were very hard for her. And of course, England is traditionally known for being (laughs) cloudy and rainy. And she absolutely dreaded those days and (laughs) loved the sunshine. And so she always considered Christmas a bright spot in the winter that would help her survive the winter. So why not make the most of this feast that is really going to help you get through the winter? So not only did she want to lengthen the Christmas holiday, she wanted it before as in Advent, and she wanted it after as in however many days you can make that Christmas last. (laughs) So, So for her, Christmas was adding this light it was actually adding light to her winter. And so for them, they wanted to celebrate as much as possible. So for Advent, you know, she actually collected nativity sets. So not just your traditional Italian nativity set. She had one from Spain. And, and then once people heard that she was collecting them, they would send her nativity sets. So she started every room in their house, somewhere in that room was a nativity set. And she cherished the the little figurines. She loved looking at them and watching them. And she had candles and, and things like that. So I just think, well, not A, it brings back your travels and your memories. And, and this was a gift, but it also reminds you of the Christmas event and that baby Jesus. So You can imagine, as you have imagined, and many, many other women have imagined when they've gone through periods, perhaps of infertility, the desire to hold that baby is so strong, so strong. And so she, in her imagination, would think of baby Jesus. So if I could only hold him, if I could only touch his little hand. So the infant Jesus, the baby Jesus, is really who she identifies with. And so those are her meditations. She's meditating on the cave and the stable and the little door. If I could just open the latch and go in and see him. And he's glowing and there's the animals and and she's envisioning the shepherds come to visit. So all of these work into her meditations and her prayer. And so every Christmas, she starts writing a poem to put in their Christmas card. So they're not going to send out the Hallmark card. They're going to send out a card with their own poem on it, with their own drawing on it. So she meditates on these. And every year, of course, she wants to write, you know, there's so much. And what's amazing is her Christmas poetry, you can see, oh, she here she's meditating on this part of the nativity. Here she's meditating on that part of the nativity. There's, it's so rich. And as we know, it is so rich to meditate upon 
you know, the story, the, the joyful mysteries of the rosary, the path to Bethlehem. And that becomes actually her most famous poem, How Far Is It to Bethlehem? And that poem is actually a meditation on Advent. We are on the journey to Bethlehem all during Advent. So reading that poem, I mean, I just, I get shivers just thinking about it. It's such a great poem. And it's been set to music and it's, it's just simple but profound. Now, in your book, The Woman Who Was Chesterton, can we find any examples of her poetry in there? What kinds of ways can we connect with her, uh, the way she celebrated Christmas or any aspects of that? Kind of prior to, as I was researching Frances, I discovered she actually had some little poetry books, booklets, published for her friends. And I found those, and I did publish them in... How far is it to Bethlehem? So this, this entire book is her poetry, uh, a few essays that she wrote, and all of her Christmas cards. All of that poetry is in here. So I do. this is a great place to find Christmas poetry to read during Advent. Wonderful. And after Christmas, too. So how far is it to Bethlehem? Yeah, it's a collection. So because I knew that, I've, well, I didn't know when I first started, but when I started um, doing this research, I discovered she actually wrote a lot of poetry and I couldn't include all of that in the biography or the biography would be twice the size it was. So I published it as a separate book. And then you can, I could say, see that book and look at that poetry, but some of it's so profound. It's, and it, there's some poetry in there uh, kind of about her infertility too. And that's really touching, touching stuff. Yeah. So she, that's one of the ways that uh, she and Gilbert connected was through their poetry. Yes. He was known for his poetry. That's really neat too, that they did their own drawings on their cards. See, I'm getting inspired. I'm thinking I, uh, they, I'm wondering how they did that for every handwritten card. Like, did they, did they create some kind of a woodcut or something to print it, or some kind of printing process that they did? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> but then, then she would sign it. So yeah, I mean, that's something creative we could do for our own Christmas. Make a card. You don't have to buy a card. I mean, certainly if it's going to, to cut down the stress in your life, I totally advocate buying cards. <laughs> but because I never want to stress any moms out by saying you have to make your own, you don't. Um, but if you're creatively inclined, or your children would like to help you on something like that, that's certainly something that maybe we could work on as a family project. Yeah, and I know that in addition to doing these kinds of handmade things and written things, and they were very fond of writing letters to the people that they loved all around the world and even their local friends. They were just so, they took such care with people. Um, I just remember reading in the Wisdom and Innocence, Joseph Pierce Pierce's bi- biography that, and I forget exactly which feast it was, but the liturgical year was very rich for them. And I remember them surprising their guests with beautiful tableaus and things like that. And at one point, their friends, the children had arranged 
a little toy ship or something on a mirror with a little lighthouse, and it represented Our Lady, that she was the, the star of the sea, that she was that, that light leading us to Christ. I mean, just beautiful little symbolic things, and that would be in the center of the dining table for that, that celebration. Um, how can we cultivate that same delight in the season? Give us some ideas for really making, bringing that same joy and togetherness into the season. Well, I think, you know, there there's so many things that the church already has, but sometimes we forget. Like, for example, I have uh, even a sister who doesn't put an Advent candle on her table. And that to me is so basic. I couldn't have Advent without an Advent candle. But maybe you've never done that before. You, Your family, it isn't your tradition. So an Advent candle, uh, the wreath. Um, so even just reading up on what do the candles symbolize? What does the wreath symbolize? You know, why do we light these candles? That sort of thing. And yet I, and on the other spectrum, I have another friend who keeps her Advent wreath out all year long with that white candle in the center. And every time there's a major feast day, the white candle gets lit for the day. So there's, I mean, you could keep it out and remind yourself all year long. This is, Advent is going to come again every year. So that's, that's just an interesting thought about um, maybe keeping that out. Um, but then besides that, there's Advent calendars. Now, when I was researching this, I was kind of looking, what, what kind of Advent calendars do they have out there? My gosh, they have mo- the most ridiculous Advent calendars out there now for dogs and cats. Oh, no. <laughs> Wine Advent calendars and, uh, you know, hair and makeup Advent candles. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> get a real Advent can- calendar. Yeah, hello. <laughs> yeah, get a real one, a Catholic one, a Christian one. Um, so there's that. Oh, and here's another thing that most people don't realize, depending on where they've gone to church, uh, that there are beautiful traditional Advent songs, much more and beyond O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is the one we always sing. But there are a variety. If you, if you Google Catholic Advent songs, you will find uh, O Come, Divine Messiah, and, and Creator of the Stars at Night. These, and you listen to them, and they're just beautiful songs. Some people have, have sung them all their lives. I didn't sing them until maybe uh, my kids were teens, and I looked up there's got to be other Advent songs. And I discovered there are other Advent songs. So that's a great thing to discover. Um, Being hospitable is one of the things that the Chestertons were really good at. And I know it's really hard right now with COVID going on and all of that. Maybe we don't want to invite other people to our homes like we would want to do if there wasn't a pandemic going on. But there's other ways that we can connect with people. And it's a secondary connection. But even things like Zoom, you know, or Skype or whatever, FaceTime, we can connect with our friends and our family in a way that's still meaningful if we make it so. If we, if we make that effort. I have a, we, um, a monthly Zoom call with my sisters and my mom. And I set it up. And oh, you know how easy it is to do that, Lisa. You just set it up. You get the link. And at the end of every time when we talk to each other, all my sisters and my mom will say, oh, thanks for setting that up. That was so nice. And it's so easy to do that. Um, It's really amazing the heart connection you can have just because you can both see and hear each other. And when there's a few of you in the room and you're put on gallery view so you can see everyone at once, right? 
It's it's funny, maybe because we're so used to screens in our times, it feels very Jetson-y for me, for my generation, right? <laughs> yeah. um, that we're actually like video phoning each other. But it God is so good. When we come together, especially if we gather and we pray together, um, I just feel like God lifts us into this other place. It really, we are a little screened out and zoomed out because of the pandemic, but don't chuck it. Like, like Nancy said, it, it's so powerful when we get together and can see each other. And we can even say, okay, um, let's bring let's bring food. We can even eat together when we're not together. I mean, it's just yes. there are surprising ways that we can connect. So yeah, so I think those connections are really really important. And and you know, there's other things that you can do. Like um, one year, I read about how uh, there was a tradition. I believe it was in Spain where you put candles in all your front windows, and that was to invite the travelers or the three kings. And so I got candles and I light them and I put them in all my windows. And then the other thing we talked about was uh, our putting on our own entertainment. Okay, so you've got kids, you've got actors, and you can put on a play, even if there are just a few of you. There are puppet theaters, which you don't have to have. You could have a, a dowel with a, a, a towel across it, and that could be your curtain. I mean, it can be very, very simple. Um, and then there can be, you know, there's very, very simple. You have stuffed animals in your house. Those could be your characters. It doesn't have to be real puppets. It could be anything you've got. Or you could draw puppets. Like Chesterton would draw these dragons and then the prince and then the princess, and he just drew them, and they would be on sticks, and that was a puppet. So it's very simple. And then the stories that you make up, well, it could be an Advent story, or it could be a fairy story, or it could be a family story. I think the family stories are actually really strong. An incident that happened in your family that you live out again through the puppet play. It's brilliant. Very powerful. Yeah. I love that. And the thing too, is we underestimate the power of our children's imaginations. You're absolutely right. The towel over the dowel. Like, remember everyone, the towel over the dowel. Um, or like behind the love seat. It doesn't matter. They're still going to have this incredible experience of living in their imaginations. And it will be a memory they'll never forget. Right. I remember one time taking a curtain rod, one of those spring rods, and I actually had an old curtain, and we hung it across a doorway, and that was good enough to be the the puppet stage. You know? Sounds awesome. That's kind of, that's so clever. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's you just have to, and I, you know, we we talk about our children and their imaginations. If if we watch them, and we uh, get you know, their, their, their laughter, their joy, their sense of wonder, it's really contagious. And we want that to infect us. So these are pandemic terms I'm using <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> we, we want that joy. It, and it is, if we, if we pay attention and we kind of shut down the noise of, I've got to bake cookies and I've got to do this and wrap presents and, oh, I better order the presents first because they're going to be late because they say that this year. So, you know, there's all this mm, going on in our heads. We have to really pause our brains and say, right now, I'm giving this time to my children, to my family, and we're going to just sit here and I'm going to try to put all that out of my head and really enjoy my children, my family, I've got to, I've got to embrace this moment because these moments don't last. 
as the mother of two daughters who are now in their 20s. I look back on those times and I think, oh, we had such joy. We had such fun. I loved those years. And they're, they're wonderful young people now, but we, we had a lot of fun when we were together. You know, that's just a special time. So, so embrace that time and, and really take advantage of it. That's such a great point, Nancy, because the awe and wonder that a child can experience looking for bugs in the grass or talking about what, you know, making up their own constellations in the sky or whatever it is. My daughter um, and my husband, when she was really little, used to walk down to the schoolyard where there was a big expanse of grass and open sky and lie on their backs and just look at the sky together. If you're in a warm climate at Christmas, why not? Or take a walk in the snow. Like you mentioned when we were um, going back and forth a little bit, Uh, before the interview, adventures, like children are having adventures in their heads. All you have to do is add a little location or a little, even if you're in an apartment in a city and there's not a lot of nature around, oh my gosh, anything that spurs that beautiful imagination of theirs, great stories uh, gathering together, as you said, drawing on that joy and letting it be contagious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we used to watch birds, we still watch birds out the window, but the the kids would name the birds and, oh, here's Mr. Chickadee. He's come back, you know, and where has he been? And you, I mean, they're just, when, when I see a chickadee, I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad he's at the window. But they see, oh, the chickadee's family and where is he going and where does he live? And yeah, they're, they're just amazing. And then they open that all up for us if we pay attention. Yeah. And did you say, I'm just going to surprise you with this question, Nancy. And by the time this airs, we don't know where this will be at, but is it your mom that's in, or your grandmother that's in the hospital? My mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law. Just ask everyone to pray for Nancy's mother-in-law. And, uh, you know, we really just, a good woman facing a, facing a hard trial at the moment. Yeah, you know how it is with, with the, the uh, pandemic right now and visitation is limited and yeah so she's she's a little bit isolated it's really hard for her yeah and she's now she's sick and so yeah it's really really a challenge and I know that I'm not the only one out there there's lots of people who have family members who are suffering and you know we just lift you all up in prayer if if I may put in a plug the Chesterton Society does the rosary live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Central. You can pray with us. We are on uh, the Facebook fan page of the Chesterton. It's Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. We also do it on Instagram. And we're live every, and we pray for all of the intentions of everyone who's praying with us and all the whole Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And it's beautiful. We use the scriptural rosary. So we do a, a a verse, and then we say the, the Hail Mary. It's, it's very beautiful. So pray with us. Beautiful, beautiful. Take us out with final thoughts on Advent and Christmas. And I'm so glad that we touched on praying together and on the suffering that's going on around us. That joy that the Chestertons had, even during times of deep trial. Take us out with some final thoughts on that, Nancy. Well, I'd like to quote Chesterton on this, so I'm going to make sure I get it right. An adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. (laughs) 
So <laughs> as inconvenient as it is right now for us to have Advent during a pandemic, the Chestertons would want us to view it as an adventure. What way can we have an adventure this Advent with our families? And I think that's the thought I'd like to leave everyone. Think about how you can make Advent an adventure. And you know, the word Advent is the beginning of the word adventure. Ooh. And for all the Latin scholars out there, or maybe it's Greek, I don't know. Where do, I'm wondering. We're going to have to see. That's our homework now, Nancy. We have to find <laughs> out what that connection is. Look that up. Something yeah. coming, the advent of something, adventure. Oh, there's just that sense of anticipation in there. All right. So we're going to make sure that links to the, the Chesterton Society's rosary opportunities are in the show page and uh, links to both your books and um, Nancy, just can't thank you enough for bringing the delight of a Chestertonian Advent and Christmas to us in this conversation. This has been wonderful, Lisa. I'm so glad you had me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And everybody, just stay tuned for a few more moments for our short feature coming right up. Hi, this is Dan Luzonis from EinsteinBlueprint.com. Today, I want to talk briefly about why parents should absolutely deprive their kids. Now, I'm not talking about making them fetch their own water from the well and forage for food in the wilderness, but, you know, sort of. I'm talking about an intentional, a strategic plan to not provide for our children, to not simply hand them stuff and experiences. Naturally, this is so that they can benefit in the long term. And the simple idea is that as they get older, they graduate from just making their bed, folding their own laundry, and doing typical household chores. That They graduate to earning all their own spending money, paying for their own car, the gasoline it runs on, and paying for all their own clothing, and just about whatever else they need or want. And most parents would agree that this would be the ideal scenario, that it would be totally awesome if their kids not only chipped in around the house, but were flush enough to never ask for a handout. However, in practice, in our wealthy society, and with so few others expecting their kids to work and start to take responsibility for their own purchases, it can be lonesome and apparently hard to be the one family who does. After all, why should Junior and Sally have to pay for their own iPhones when none of their friends and cousins do? And moms and dads, you know, we would really like to be able to get in touch with our kids and monitor their whereabouts. So we all too often just justify giving them the phones. However, there are a couple big problems with providing for rather than depriving our kids. First of all, it reduces their own powers of resourcefulness. Look, when kids really want something, when they really, 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 really want it, they will amaze you with their persistence and ambition. If we can stick with the iPhone, for example, when my daughter wanted one, she worked her tail off and mustered up the whopping $800 to buy it all by herself. Guess what? She was only 12 years old at the time. If my wife and I had simply given her a phone, we would have deprived her of that powerful life-transforming lesson, and she was fully capable of going out and hustling up $800. The second reason you should deny and deprive your kids until you can see their ribs, well, just kidding, sort of, well, if you don't, if you hand-deliver things they haven't earned, you will destroy their overall powers of self-motivation. Barbara Corcoran, one of the sharks on TV's Shark Tank, said that 
You know, when a kid has already visited Italy, they never grow up with a burning curiosity about what it's like. They never spend years dreaming, working for, and saving up for a trip there to visit. When we take them there ourselves, we completely short-circuit that dream and the important educational process. Now, I agree, this is not so easy to pull off, and there are other educational benefits to travel, to technology, and the things we invest in our kids. However, I believe in order to maximize our kids' futures, we need to figure out ways to cut the financial umbilical cord much sooner rather than later. If you want to learn more directly how to turn your kids into resourceful, self-motivated entrepreneurs who can pay for not only the $200 pair of <laughs> ripped jeans they want, their iPhones and everything else, then visit my 16-year-old homeschool son's website, kidsgetrich.com. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.